And this is why we see things that are unpopular or uncommon at first starting to catch on out in the periphery where they can generate kind of coordination and social reinforcement among the sort of less connected people until that group reaches enough of a critical mass that then people who are more connected say, oh, this thing is actually quite popular. I think I'll do it too. And so what you tend to see, and this again resonates with the Oprah story, is that people who are more highly connected tend to adopt right at the cusp of when something has already kind of cracked the threshold of critical mass. And now it's just exploding and then the influencers jump on too. And again, as I was saying with the Oprah story, that means if you look back over the historical tape, it'll look like the influencer adopted right when things got popular. But actually what was happening was things were getting really popular and that's why the influencer adopted. And for those of you who are thinking about tuning out, get a load of this, I just want to whet your appetite. In the pages ahead, Damon takes us to Silicon Valley where we see innovations and unintentionally crushed by the very influencers who are supposed to help promote them. We visit Denmark and discover how a clever group of computer science de scientists deployed a network of autonomous Twitter bots to spawn human social networks that spread social activism to thousands of people. We venture behind the scenes at Harvard University where network scientists pioneered and patented networking strategies to accelerate the adoption of innovative technologies. And we also unravel how President Barack Obama used novel networking strategies to improve the quality of his presidential decisions. There is so much more in there. This is changed by Damon Santola. Stay hungry, stay foolish. The Innovation Show is proudly brought to you by Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to transfer funds with ease and manage multiple payment workflows. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's get into change with Damon Centola. Before we even start today's show, have a think. How do you believe change happens? Is it like a virus? An idea virus? Prepare to have everything you believe you know about change entirely unraveled by today's guest. From the spread of COVID-19 to the rise of political polarization, from implicit bias to genetically modified food, from NASA to Netflix, it's time to think differently about how change works. Our guest is the world expert in the new science of networks. His groundbreaking research across areas as disparate as voting, health, technology and finance has highlighted powerful and highly effective new ways to ensure lasting change. In today's book, he distills more than a decade of deep experience into a fascinating new theory that challenges previous assumptions that new ideas are either contagious or they're not. He shows that beliefs and behaviors are not transmitted from person to person in the simple way that a virus is. The real story of social change is more complex and much more interesting. When we are exposed to a new idea, our social networks guide our responses in striking and surprising ways. Drawing on deep yet accessible research and fascinating examples, his book presents a paradigm-shifting new science for understanding what drives change, recognizing our blind spots, and how we can change the world around us. It is an immense pleasure to welcome the author of Change, 
How to Make Big Things Happen. Professor Damon Santola, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aidan. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's great to have you on the show. And I'm going to say this, man, because we o- I only found this out. Look at the size of this bad boy. Beautiful book. Massive amount of research. And you wrote it when you were having a baby. <laughs> a busy time. Amazing. Amazing. So l- let's get into it because we've limited time together. It's really hard to get Damon. It's really hard to get him in the diary. So I thought we'd start with you because not only do you study change and created this magnificent book about change, but you are a change maker. And I'm going to tee you up with a little quote as follows. You said at the start of the book, this book is about change, how it works and why it often fails. It's about the spread of unlikely innovations, the success of fringe movements, the acceptance of unpopular ideas and the triumph of contentious new beliefs. And it's about the new strategies that help them succeed. Those success stories all have one thing in common, the radical new ideas at their core all expanded and spread through social networks. You, Damon, have a unique perspective on these questions because you are a sociologist who studies the science of social networks. And in fact, over the last couple of decades, your ideas have helped shape this brand new field. So I thought we'd start there with you, you, the change maker. Yeah, it's funny to think of yourself as a change maker. Um, I think that the what's interesting about the sort of growth of this area of research is that uh, it started in, you know, decades ago, obviously, but kind of in this sort of murky, interesting, bizarre area where like physics was starting to intersect with biology. Um, and then, you know, with chemistry and with economics and all these different ways of looking at um, complex systems. And then we started thinking about social life and social science in a similar way. And I think that one of the kind of most, for me, most sort of eye-opening moments was when we started to sort of think about the way in which our hard sciences inform our social sciences. Um, the ideas largely were coming from things like uh, epidemiology, you know, like how, how we measure the spread of uh, viruses and a lot of the physics that was using to sort of model those kinds of um, disease spreading networks. And it seemed natural to then say, well, we can just transplant those ideas into the space of, you know, information flow and then things like maybe social movements and then maybe technology adoption and kind of generalize. Um, and one of the really, I think, great things about science is that Although you can get those kinds of intuitions about how you generalize from one field to the next, you can also test those intuitions and ask whether or not that actually works right or, 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 or fails. Um, and then for me, some of the early discoveries were realizing that some of the places where, you know, an implication from disease theory should uh, tell us something about how, like, a revolution spread, how the civil rights movement spread, or how Arab Spring emerged. Um, it just wasn't working out the way that we thought it should. And this is really interesting because most people don't think of social science as having like predictions. Um, but this idea of like borrowing the kind of models from physics allows us to make really specific predictions about what should happen, what we expect to see. And then now with the sort of revolution in data collection, we can start to ask questions about those predictions and actually evaluate them. Um, and that was sort of the, the sort of, for me, the linchpin of being able to do this kind of science was that we can, we can not only test our theories using available big data, 
Um, but we can design experiments, you know, with thousands of people and initiate a sort of a change process and see whether or not um, our theoretical predictions work. And if they don't work, we can develop new theories to see whether or not we could actually alter the path of uh, an innovation process or a social movement process. And that's an incredibly exciting and interesting opportunity for um, any kind of scientist to be on the sort of cusp of a new capacity to do like real predictive science in a space where historically it's just been impossible. Um, and so I think for me and for a lot of people who work in this space, the real explosion of new ideas and sort of the ability to sort of uh, think differently and to explore entirely new theories has given rise to um, just a tremendous amount of intellectual excitement about being able to do social science in our day and age. It's absolutely magnificent. I can't wait to share this with our audience. Our audience are change makers, people working in social innovation and in innovation in large corporations, pulling their hair out. But it's often because we don't understand this. And this is why I'm so grateful to, for you to come onto the show and actually share this. So I don't want to hesitate anymore because your research has shown that as we consider whether to adopt a new belief or behavior, we're guided much more than we realize by our social networks. And this much deeper process of social spreading is what you call complex contagion. And I thought we'd start by sharing that. The basic disease model of spreading basically assumes that a relationship between a person is, is basically like a pipe. It's, you know, a conduit for me to spread COVID-19 to you, and then you spread it to other people, or for me to give you a piece of information and you to tell somebody else. And what we've realized is that um, when we start to look at the way behaviors spread in social networks, the relationships between people aren't just pipes, aren't just conduits for, you know, someone adopts a certain diet and then someone else adopts it. The relationships around us are also these prisms that kind of refract and color the behaviors we see and determine whether or not we think it's like a good idea or a bad idea and what how those influences ultimately shape our capacity to adopt and how we get folded into that next step in the process of influencing the people around us. And also the influences of our neighbors and near neighbors combine with us to sort of create a bigger picture for sort of the people who are observing our behavior. And so the fact that networks are doing this work that isn't just like disease propagation, but it's also shaping how we think and how we feel about the things we see around us is really this process of complex contagion where the invisible structure and ultimately what's interesting is like the geometry of the social networks we're embedded in is kind of controlling our sort of our receptivity to new ideas and how we ultimately transmit those ideas to other people. And so the simplest way of talking about this is just to say, well, look, if someone is infected with a highly uh, virulent disease like, you know, COVID-19 or measles, and you come into contact with them, then in the right circumstances, that'll spread to you and to other people. You don't need to know anything or to think anything or to believe anything. That will just kind of happen by itself. Um, and that's the kind of one-to-one -one model of disease transmission. All you need is to come in contact with one person and you can get sick. Of course, for behavior change, oftentimes if someone comes in with a new idea, let's say someone's wearing a face mask, but no one else you know is wearing a face mask, that one person stands in opposition to all the implicit influences around you. So those people, even though they're not actively doing anything, are providing kind of a social norm, which is saying, 
we don't really wear face masks. And this one person wearing a face mask is doing something different. So instead of that person being a source of transmission, like someone infected with the measles would be, that person is actually maybe a source of opposition, which is they're doing something different than everybody else. I'm going to ignore everything that person does because they're sort of odd and uh, deviating from the social norms. But now what happens when two and three and four and five and six people in your social network start to wear masks? There's sort of a, there's a shift in social expectations where all of a sudden it's not just that one person adopting that behavior. It starts to feel like everyone. And we start, we stop counting the specific individuals adopting a behavior and it starts to feel like just a group movement. And now all of a sudden it feels normal, natural, and the social expectations shift where we feel like this is something we should do too. It turns out that this process of reinforcement, which is complex contagion, plays an enormous role in every social movement we've seen from Arab Spring to Black Lives Matter, um, even back to the civil rights movement, the protests of the Berlin Wall, um, but also in things like the spread of the um, acceptance of solar panels and solar energy for household power, um, and even the growth of acceptance of you know, farming technologies in Europe and in the US. And so one of the big sort of ideas here is that the viral model that describes sort of things spreading from person to person through pipes doesn't capture at all the process of real behavior change and how it cascades through networks. Now, the deep, the deep insight is that the geometry, the sort of network pathways that allow a virus to spread effectively are pathways that really won't be very effective for spreading behavior. It turns out that the geometries that are really effective for creating that kind of reinforcement from multiple sources and kind of shifting the, the social norms in a community those networks aren't very effective for spreading viruses, but they're really powerful for spreading behavior change. And so this actually tells us that the science of behavior change really should go in a different direction. And this is some of the more powerful stuff we found out empirically with some of the experiments is that you can generate predictions that show that the exact same network that would accelerate the spread of a virus or accelerate information spreading actually slows down the spread of behavior change. Um, and this is where you can see like a really new uh, direction and path for the science of social change. And for anybody who's working as an influencer out there, you're not going to like this show because <laughs> they was going to do... <laughs> hopefully, hopefully in the end, you'll like it because you'll see that there are better strategies to use, right? <laughs> Especially if you're a brand. But for those of you intrigued, right, first of all, Damon, you won't know this, but the book's on special on Amazon.co.uk, which is where I bought it here in Ireland. Uh, so the hardcover is on special. It's less than the paperback. So get a copy. And for those of you who are thinking about tuning out, get a load of this. I just want to whet your appetite. In the pages ahead, Damon takes us to Silicon Valley, where we see innovations and unintentionally crushed by the very influencers who are supposed to help promote them. We visit Denmark and discover how a clever group of computer science de scientists deployed a network of autonomous Twitter bots to spawn human social networks that spread social activism to thousands of people. We venture behind the scenes at Harvard University, where network scientists pioneered and patented networking strategies to accelerate the adoption of innovative technologies. And we also unravel how President Barack Obama used novel networking strategies to improve the quality of his presidential decisions. There is so much more in there. This is changed by Damon Santola. And I thought we'd start with something I alluded to it there a second ago, the Oprah fallacy. 
One of the interesting things about uh, social science and uh, the fact that humans are all walking around as like you know social scientists, we're all trying to figure out how the world works, um, is that an intuition, like the idea that a high-profile influencer is responsible for spreading new technologies, um, even when it's wrong, uh, we can still somehow retell history to make that seem right. Um, and so one of the classic examples of this is um, that Twitter was kind of stumbling along for years before it really gained the, the kind of popularity we have today. And uh, at some point, Oprah adopted Twitter on her television show. And after that point, uh, Twitter was, you know, much more successful than it was before. And so there's an inference, uh, naturally, when you look at that history to say, oh, obviously the explanation for, uh, for Twitter's success is that Oprah adopted, Oprah's an influencer, therefore you know, uh, influencers are responsible for the success of new technologies. I have some colleagues at MIT um, who were working on looking at the actual spread of Twitter. And what they found was something really interesting they found that Twitter actually spread in the San Francisco Bay Area geographically, like literally neighborhood to neighborhood spilling over uh, through these sort of clusters of friends, which doesn't seem intuitive at first because you think of it as an internet technology, so it should be all over the world at once. And then it spread from there to Cambridge, um, which is interesting because Cambridge is across the country, right, from, uh, <clears throat> uh, from the San Francisco Bay Area. But uh, what went up happening was there were a bunch of relationships from largely from people who went to school together um, in Cambridge and, and in San Francisco. And those relationships carried the innovation over to Massachusetts and it started to spread out there, too. And it grew and grew and grew ultimately until it reached a critical mass. And that was to say it was it had sort of gained traction enough different cities that now it started to spread in lots of different places that weren't necessarily tech hubs and weren't sort of these dense relationships of college students. And at that point, the growth was exponential and then hyper exponential. Uh, week after week, Twitter was growing from 8 million to 10 million to 20 million. And at that point, Oprah adopted. Now, what's really interesting is Oprah adopted at the peak of the fastest part of the growth curve for Twitter. Now, after Oprah adopted, Twitter adoption kept increasing, but the actual rate of Twitter adoption actually started to go down. So what that tells us is that the massive acceleration in the popularity of Twitter is what got Oprah to adopt. And it's ultimately what led to everyone else adopting too. So it's not that Oprah caused Twitter to grow fast. It's that Twitter growing fast caused Oprah to adopt. Right. Um, and so without doing the kind of, you know, careful science around this, it's impossible to see it because we'll tell ourselves a story that makes sense with our intuitions. And also makes sense with who you're paying to be your influencer as well. There's a little bit of a uh, little bit of uh, bias in there. But um, Dave, before I, I take an ex excerpt, I just wanted to share, I couldn't find anywhere the Aerosmith gesture. Is it that? Is that what it is? Is is that the Aerosmith gesture? That is the Aerosmith gesture. Okay, right. okay. <laughs> I guess that's what it was because I couldn't find a picture of it. So let me let me tee this one up for you. I love this. A revealing study conducted in the virtual reality platform Second Life provides rich insight into how the spread of innovation accelerates when we target networks of peripheral users, not the Oprahs of the world. But oh, but our everyday friends and neighbors. In 2008, physicist Lada Adamic and scientists 
Eaton Bakshay and Brian Carrer, excuse me if I get their names wrong, set out to use this digital precision to measure the person-to-person transfer of a new behavior. Conventional wisdom at the time said the first thing to do was look for the influencers. This is the idea of the Aerosmith gesture. I mean, the intuition was, look, if, if you have something spreading across uh, a digital platform like Second Life and it spreads really effectively and you've got uh, these social hubs, these people who are highly connected, clearly, I mean, our first guess is that the reason it became so successful is because someone who's pretty popular adopted it and then everyone followed them. Um, the thing to think about, and this actually relates you know, to the, to the Oprah story, is if someone's pretty popular, they've got a lot, of, a lot of outgoing ties. A lot of people are watching them, and that's how we think of, you know, um, honestly, the again, it comes from the idea of disease spreading, which is that you have a super spreader. You know, someone gets COVID, but they're incredibly social. They spread COVID to a lot of people. Or someone gets measles, and they're incredibly social. They infect a lot of people with the measles. So we think of like one person um, as the sort of origin point for spreading outward to a lot of people. In social life, the difference is that if someone has lots of social ties, it also means they have lots of people observing them, right? And particularly online, the people commenting and evaluating, uh, you know, what they're doing. And so that means that they actually become a little bit more conservative in terms of what they're willing to adopt. Um, And so as was the case with Oprah, she's not going to just adopt any technology and spend time on her show, you know, using it and selling it if it's not something she feels like gives her a certain social cachet. So it's not until Twitter gains its own grassroots success that someone like Oprah is ultimately going to come along and adopt it. And so what the Second Life data showed was a similar kind of process where when people adopt gestures, largely what they expect is reciprocation. Think of something like a high five. Like if you go to high five someone, the worst thing that could happen is they give you a weird look and don't high five you back, right? So there's this implicit need for coordination. If I'm going to try to high five, I need to know that other people want to high five too. And in a space like Second Life, gestures are things that you have to acquire specifically. You have to like go and get them or buy them in many cases and add them to your sort of profile of abilities. And so if someone wants to run around doing a gesture, but no one else can do that gesture back, then it's a little embarrassing and you seem like kind of an oddball. So people who are extremely highly connected with lots of contacts are going to kind of wait to see if that gesture is, you know, adopted by lots of people they know. But because they know so many people, just because one or two people are adopting, it doesn't mean it's going to convince them because the vast majority of their contacts aren't. But people out in the periphery who have fewer contacts can see just a few people adopt this gesture and think, well, now this is something that I could use because enough people in my network are using it that's relevant to me. And this is why we see things that are unpopular or uncommon at first starting to catch on out in the periphery where they can generate kind of coordination and social reinforcement among the sort of less connected people until that group reaches enough of a critical mass that then people who are more connected say, oh, this thing is actually quite popular. I think I'll do it too. And so what you tend to see, and this again resonates with the Oprah story, is that people who are more highly connected tend to adopt right at the cusp of when something has already kind of cracked the threshold of critical mass. And now it's just exploding and then the influencers jump on too. And again, as I was saying with the Oprah story, that means if you look back over the historical tape, it'll look like the influencer adopted right when things got popular. But actually what was happening was things were getting really popular and that's why the influencer adopted, right? It's so important to understand this. Like, so we're, we're only getting started here, by the way. And I wanted to go a little bit deeper into the history like Damon does. He goes right back here. And you said in the 70s, sociologists discovered a new truth 
about the spread of information that would shift the dominant thinking. It would irrevocably change the best practices for spreading ideas in management, education, finance and government. This intellectual revolution would become known as network science. Maybe you'll give us a little bit of a background on the origins of network science. I would say the main people here are people who I've looked up to my entire career. Uh, um, actually, my my professorship at, at Penn is called the Elihu Katz Professorship. And actually, Elihu Katz is one of the founders of this whole field. And he, um, together with Paul Lazarsfeld, was at Columbia. And there was a huge push at that time to do, this is like the heyday of early sort of network science and social science, to do really like good, hard thinking, um, substantive social science, like working on topics like the you know deep issues surrounding voting or deep issues surrounding consumer choice. I did these deep dive studies, like each one resulted in a very big book um, just on that study. And what they were trying to figure out is what are the main factors? And what was sort of central at that time was um, media. And thinking about like radio advertising and subsequently tele television advertising as the main vehicles for um, obviously we can think of other things today like public health, you know, reaching the, the population. Back then it was like, well, how do candidates, you know, convince voters to vote for them? Well, they they put on advertisements, and they try to get sort of their word out. Um, and then, you know, by analogy, how do consumer products spread? Well, they make advertisements, they try to get the word out. Um, and the big discovery, uh, you know, first with voting and then with consumer products um, was that largely most people weren't really listening to, you know, these messages on the radio and on television, what people were doing were listening to each other. And that there were certain people who were disproportionately attuned to the media. And that those people were then um, disproportionately influential in their immediate social networks. And so these people became kind of these relay stations from mainstream media into the social networks. And so they, they were like these key nodes. And um, they coined this term, Paul Lazarsfeld coined the term opinion leader. Um, and this is what today we would refer to as an influencer, just someone who was um, kind of in the know and then doing a lot of work to spread whatever new piece of information there was through the, the social network. Um, and uh, then they started doing some research on consumers and finding that this was you know, true for innovation adoption too. And so a lot, and then I think they shifted focus to looking at doctors and how doctors adopt uh, new medical practices and then finding similar kinds of things there. So it was a sort of cascading set of literature that, that was shifting attention from um, media advertising and more importantly from like genuine information. Why do you think of that as like public health information, medical information, candidate information to the fact that people were largely being influenced by people in their social network and then trying to figure out how that network process functions. Um, and where the sort of um, work by Paul Lazarsfeld and Elihu Katz kind of stopped was saying, all right, well, there are these people who do this work and sort of spreading the message to everyone else. But then what does that process look like? Like, how does it cascade through the network? And can we sort of get a, a grip on that? Uh, and that was the 1970s is really when we started to get a really nice handle on the uh, mathematical and geometric properties of networks that allowed that kind of cascade process to take hold and go like one step, two step, three steps, four steps into the network. Um, so there's some famous results between those two. Like we know about the, the small world result that if you measure the number of steps it took to send a message across the country, it would be about six steps. Um, and things like this where people were exploring in these kind of like really um, primitive ways like what, you know, how are people connected? What kind of information is spreading? What, what can we know about it? And it was all being kind of pieced together. 
Um, and then I would say the 1970s was this kind of explosion of very serious science around a, a formalization of the length of network ties and how far each connection spreads a piece of information to the network. And so the concept of distance is kind of strange because it doesn't really mean geographic distance necessarily. Um, it, what it really means is if you were to take a path from person to person to person to person and walk from like a single individual who had an idea to how many steps it would take in a network to spread that idea to somebody else. Um, oftentimes it would take quite a few steps to get from someone who's in like one social group or lives in one area to someone who's in a vastly different social group or lives in a different area. And then they noticed there were these people who had ties that would jump across the social space, right? And we would think of these ties as like someone you might bump into in an airport or someone you might sort of meet casually um, in a restaurant that you would talk to them for a few minutes about a new app or a new idea, um, a new program. And then that piece of information would then jump from your immediate social circle to somewhere else. So the, the quintessential example here was job search, was how do you find out about new jobs? Um, and everyone thinks, well, I find out about new jobs from my close friends, from my family. And the sort of mind-bending intuition was, no, actually, you find out from new, <laughs> about new jobs from people who you don't know very well, because everyone you know well knows about the same jobs that you know about, right? So if you're going to find out about a new job, it's going to be from someone you just kind of bump into casually who lives in an entirely different network. Their close friends and family have no connection to your close friends and family. But by virtue of that kind of accidental contact, there's now this long distance bridging tie that's connected these two parts of the network and allowed information to spread across them. And voila, you learn about something that no one else you know in your little circle has ever heard about. And then these sort of long distance bridging ties became, in many ways, the sort of anchor point for much of networks thinking up through honestly, up through the, the 2000s. And for our audience as well, you'll remember the name Stanley Milgram, because we had Elliot Aronson on the show, Damon, and we had a magnificent talk about that and uh, many, many of the different biases. But Milgram was famous for his infamous experiment on obedience and authority. But maybe you'll get tell us a little bit because it was his experiment. And I was laughing about how he had to go and pitch for such a small amount of money to make this postcard study come to life. The postcard study is interesting, because it was really a time when everyone was trying to figure out what the uh, connectedness of the world looked like. And it was mostly mathematicians at Harvard and MIT. Um, working on some small group studies, but mostly just trying to reason it through. Like, what are some basic assumptions we can make? And if we make those assumptions, how can we then infer what connectedness looks like? And one of the things that happened was that people took like a little bit of samples from um, the Cambridge area and then made some inferences. And this was a couple of guys at MIT and said, oh, look, there's about two degrees of separation. And this was something Milgram saw and said, look, yeah, if you take a group of people who all know each other, then sure, there's going to be lots of little triangles in that group. And so no one's going to be very far from anyone else. But he was like, look, there's huge divisions in social networks by things like social class and by income and at that time by race. And so if you're in one group, sure, in that group, you're going to see lots of connections and short distances. But how do you get from that group to other groups? Right. What, what does the distance look like across different segments of society? And so that was kind of how I problematized what was being done at the time and said, we really need good data. We need some way of figuring out um, how you stretch across the scope of our country um, from people who are sort of arbitrary, from one random person to another random person. Um, 
And his idea is really, I mean, it's funny because it's not actually an experiment. It's just a data collection effort, but it's incredibly innovative from the point of view of what had been done historically, um, you know, from local samples of, you know, friends or friends networks to say, well, can I take a stranger in Nebraska, just a random person, and then ask them to find somebody else in Massachusetts. But the way they had to find them was by going through people they already knew. And this is interesting because the question of like, well, how do you constrain people? How do you force them to go through their social networks? The idea of using a postcard was basically saying, well, you can only mail it to somebody you know, because how else would you mail it to anybody? So you, and then you have to ask them to do the same. And the idea is to sort of imagine what people think of as close. How do you get a message to someone, this, in this case, a stockbroker in Massachusetts, if you're a grocery clerk in Nebraska? Um, and the idea was that they would try to sort of conceptualize what close meant. Well, maybe I know someone who works in finance in Chicago. So that's close because that person works in the same field. Or I know someone who's a bread baker in New England. Now, they're not a stockbroker, but they live in New England, and so that's close geographically. And so it's exploiting these kinds of intuitive notions that people have in their head to try to elicit what that means for the actual network structure. And then so he was able to derive these like chains of postcards where one person would get it, they get the same instructions, they mail it to someone else, and so on and so forth. Um, and he got this result, which is you know, been interrogated a lot over the decades, but, you know, more or less, you get about five or six degrees of separation. Some chains were very long, like 17 steps, and some were quite short. But, you know, the kind of average gives you sort of the characteristic or typical length of networks in the country. And that's obviously remarkable because, you know, when you're going from people who live so far apart and have nothing in common uh, socially or demographically and say, look, in six steps, you can get from anyone to anyone else, a revelation. Now, of course, what people have spent the majority of time afterwards trying to figure out is, do we actually know how to use those networks? Like, do I know which people to tap to let me travel those six steps? Or if I start picking people randomly, what wind up being many more steps? And so the basically functional question of like what those networks mean for us, and particularly, you know, in our day and age for like, activism and for, you know, social change campaigns or even for, you know, innovation adoption campaigns and for marketing campaigns. How do we think of those networks as things we can activate to trigger not just like a information spreading process, but some kind of behavior change process? And that's really where that's really where the thinking that I've been doing and the work I do has picked up. And you do such a great job in, in the first chapter to kind of set us up beautifully. And I want to just, if you're okay with this, go back to Carl Dieter Opp and the Berlin study and compare it then to what did or didn't happen in Tahrir Square. And I'll tee you up here with a beautiful quote. And, and I wanted to quote this particularly for our audience, Damon, who are working in change, who are frustrated out of their minds with not beating the status quo. And you say, in any struggle for freedom, countless brave souls stand up valiantly against oppression. Most of them are quickly silenced by the regime, but that's only if they act alone. Social networks are the coordinating sinews, I love the language here, that allow large numbers of regular people from many different walks of life to act together. When people act as a coordinated whole, then any one person's action, that of Rosa Parks, for example, carries with it a mass of anonymous people. That is how revolutions are sparked. Beautiful language there. So this is the difference between 
Berlin on Tahrir Square years later. Yeah. Um, so I'll say first that in, when I was writing that, I was thinking of the, uh, the civil rights movement and the fact that we cel- we celebrate individuals like Rosa Parks. And she, of course, was, as I was saying, a brave soul. Um, but the thing is, there are lots of other anonymous brave souls. And I mentioned Claudia Colvin in that case. But um, lots of uh, young people and often young women who stood up and, and wouldn't um, abide by the segregated seating rules. And uh, and many of them were just arrested and silenced. And so, you know, you have lots and lots of people taking a stand. And then the question is, well, when does that change? When when does an individual's effort no longer fall silent, but somehow coordinate and mobilize lots of people? And what happened is that Rosa Parks was more embedded in this in this activism network. Um, and that her efforts were connected to lots of other people's efforts, and they helped to shift and mobilize sort of a, a broader movement. What happened in Berlin that's so striking is that uh, you know these are regular citizens coming to the the wall, and they were facing you know um, armed Soviet soldiers, and those guns were loaded um, and facing the citizens. And so the question is, what would inspire people to go down there after you know? decades of this kind of Soviet rule. So like what would inspire them to go down there and and face and confront that? And really it was this greater sense of social solidarity that people felt like there were enough other people going that the expectation for them, not in terms of people use the term peer pressure. It's not like that, but it's just this sense of like what's normal and right started to shift and they felt like they wanted to be part of it too. And I think that many of us have had these moments with with you know social change where all of a sudden there's this kind of excitement that kicks in where it's part you know rational and part just pure emotional where we feel like we want to get caught up in it we want to be part of this moment that we feel like is important and if it were just a few people or if it were just us we wouldn't have that sense of things but as more people become engaged in this sort of this defiance this kind of social change action um, it starts to feel like even if it fails, it's something that we want uh, to have been part of. But more important than that, we feel that because there's such momentum that we feel like this thing can actually succeed. And this is the, the magic of tipping points, which is that, you know, you can have years and years and years of, you know, protests and activists at a small scale, not really having much impact. But when you start to see this sort of this fulcrum being reached, then all of a sudden you see this massive acceleration in interest and excitement because people can sort of feel it. And what they're feeling, what that sensation is, is this sort of experience of social reinforcement around them. This is complex contagion. It's this process of like enough people are changing their behavior that now it feels like this is what everyone's doing. Um, And that's something that we're not really conscious of, but it's something you can actually measure, which is that, you know, there's this sort of trigger point and then that happens individually and then collectively. And the, the story of Carl Dieter Opp uh, is interesting. Uh, he's a, one of our great sociologists. Um, and he was uh, studying it by, you know, driving over uh, to Leipzig, I believe, and just getting out of his car and walking around asking people, you know, were, were you there at the wall protest? Why did you do it? You know, just like pencil and paper, you know, recording these, these uh, survey data. Um and trying to get sort of a scientific grip on like what our best explanation for this is. And this is what he came to was like fundamentally what was going on was a social phenomenon. It wasn't economic. It wasn't this sort of, you know, principled political stance that it was just that other people were doing it. And there was this coordinated mass action. Um, 
And so this is why the, the, the sort of story of networks became so important for social science and really for understanding, you know, the world we live in and how it changes is that these things uh, almost always happen through these, as I was saying, these coordinating sinews, but those things are invisible. We don't see our social networks. They're just a mathematical representation of something. So that's, you know, that's why it's so interesting that we can do like really systematic science on it now, because even if it's invisible to us, we can nevertheless measure it and show exactly how it can affect the change process. Okay. So um, you want me to connect this to Tahir Square? Yeah. <laughs> so Tahir Square is pretty interesting because what happens there is um, almost like a natural, it's not exactly a natural experiment, but it's similar in the sense that you have um, an activist, it is, uh, and I, I don't need to rehearse the whole thing. Egypt was, you know, in turmoil. There's um, a lot of uh, discontent, but you know, there's activists every week saying we should revolt. We should revolt. So, like, that's fine. And there are people all the time in every corner of the world saying we should revolt, right? And the vast majority of those messages are ignored, right? They're ineffective. Um, but in this case, in Egypt, you had the. Um, um, the April 6th group, which was a, a young uh, activist group. And um, one of the main leaders was this woman, Azza Mahus, and she um, had made a really uh, um, compelling post on social media and she had lots of followers. And the idea was that people would come to the, the square, meet with her and protest the government um, and try to initiate revolution. And uh, she showed up with a couple of people, but, you know, nobody else showed up except for the police, because the challenge with social media is that you're letting everyone know you're about to start a revolution. Um, so everyone was arrested. And then, um, you know, finally they were released. And they went home and she made another post. But what happened basically between January 18th, when she made this failed post that was supposed to activate everyone and didn't, and January 25th was that the sort of regular people who had heard about this initial thing failing started to kind of talk to each other and feel like, hey, are you going to show up? Yeah, I might show up. And then um, those networks sort of were, were sort of bleeding into like students and teachers and shop owners and regular folks who aren't young revolutionary activists. They're just people with the normal kind of social pressures and agendas of everyone else. But when you start to see people who have the same concerns and um, obligations that you do, uh, engaging in sort of uh, active interest in, in social protest and social change, it changes your calculus as well. You start to believe that this is something that's um, relevant to you and something that, again, in terms of your expectations for yourself, um, start to create your sort of interest in participating in this as well. And this started to radiate around the, the sort of the, the, the networks um, in Cairo and started to grow and grow until on the 25th, like, you know, 10,000 people showed up and then it grew and it grew and it spread from city to city to city to city. And what was sort of magical about it was that you had the influencer make their big message on the 18th and it had no effect. And then you had these percolating networks just kind of invisibly growing this movement. And then on the 25th, you had this sort of massive social change that topples the government. And it really sort of highlights the difference between one person acting alone versus this sort of coordinated network of people acting together. You know what it really made me think of? Uh, that movie, The Truman Show, and how there's almost like nudges everywhere to go a certain way and it creates his reality in in a way and i i saw those nudges and all those other actors who were real life actors in the movie but as almost like uh, 
of parts of the prism that you talk about. They were just nudging the behavior and creating the reality for that person. And I thought of that when I read this great quote from your book, you said the hero of this book is not a celebrity or a social star, but rather a location within our social networks. It's not a person but a place. It is the kind of place where the confluence of social ties across different social groups strengthens bonds between families, partnerships across organizations, and solidarity within nations. I love that quote, because that really encapsulates, it's not about the influencer, it's about this confluence of different events that happen. What's so interesting, I think this is the, the kind of shift that network science has pioneered over the last couple of decades, that's really, I think, again, come to a head with some of the, the experimental science we can do today to show um, in a less abstract, uh, much more practical way, what this means. That when we pick a person, what we're imagining is that either the charisma of that individual or in some sense, their you know ability to be connected socially. And this is something that in many ways I'm trying to reorient people from from Malcolm Gladwell, who said, look, you know, there's highly connected people and, you know, if we can just find them, everything will work. Um, and he's explicit about saying, like, this is how viruses work and this is how everything else works, too. Right. And so, you know, the answer is, well, that is how viruses work, but it is not how everything else works. And part of why I think that viral story is initially compelling and easy to understand is because it tells us that we just need to find the right person without trying to figure out why that would make a difference. And what's so, I think, interesting about looking for the right place is that when we do identify these right places, and there's a math, there's a several mathematical papers actually that describe exactly how to locate those places using a certain set of formula. But the most important thing is that when we can find those sort of like little clusters in the network that are like exponentially more effective for growing social change than any other spot, the people who are in those clusters are not the highly connected people. They're not what we would refer to as the influencers or the opinion leaders. They're by all obvious factors, regular folks. But what they are is they're sort of at this interconnected nexus of what I refer to as wide bridges, basically community structures that link one group to another group and, and to, to diverse kinds of groups. They create these sort of pathways that reach incredibly far throughout the network but it's not just one person's links spreading everywhere else. It's actually these sort of what I refer to as wide bridges that create social reinforcement and community sort of um, sensibility across different diverse groups. And my favorite example of this is Black Lives Matter, because nobody could have predicted that before it happened. Like there's no without network science, you cannot see what happened or why. Eric Gardner was was killed in New York City um, in July. And uh, there was a videotape of him being choked to death. And there were some small social protests, but there was not a nationwide social movement. And it was just after that in Ferguson. And in Ferguson, there wasn't a videotape of the murder. And more importantly, Ferguson, Missouri is in the middle of nowhere and not at all the cultural um, or informational hub that New York is. And so it really sets for us this important question about why something that's this longstanding problem in America, which is police violence in African-American communities, fails to really gain national traction when all of these high profile things are happening in major cities. And somehow in Ferguson, Missouri, it sparks this nationwide sort of movement. 
Um, and what's happening is that between those events, the social media networks, particularly around Ferguson, start to shift. And you start to see more and more connections from like the anonymous group to white liberal groups, to young black activist groups, to celebrity groups. And these people had all been having their own independent conversation about, you know, black activism and police violence um, and civil rights. But all of a sudden around Ferguson, they started having conversations that were connected. And one of the most interesting things that happens there is that the media, which largely had been sort of oppositional or external to these movements that had sort of, you know, criticized them or evaluated them from outside. So the very first um, media reports on um, death of Michael Brown and Ferguson said uh, that there were uh, mob protests, you know, in the um, in the town and people, regular citizens started responding on social media to the, um, the national media saying, why are you referring to this as mob protests? This is, um, these are, you know, civil protests. These are community of responses to the death of a, of a, of a young man in our community. And um, there, a dialogue started, essentially a, a series of network connections on social media were, you know, birthed in that space that established a kind of um, shared language where all of a sudden media felt responsible to respond to the citizens and the citizens engaged back. And this went back and forth. And this kind of network then started engaging citizens from around the country or participating in this conversation in a coordinated way for the first time where lots of people were talking about the same thing. And this is where the term Black Lives Matter, who actually had originally been posted uh, two years earlier, and it maybe had like 48 posts, like it just, it never really caught on. It became kind of the focal point for this. And it, and it had meaning, it had depth, it had sort of connection to civil rights principles, had connection to um, the question of police violence in black communities. And it had some sort of very specific meanings that were able to translate across the celebrity world and the white liberal world and the young black activist world and so forth. And that allowed everyone to start speaking a common language and so very quickly, within the space of just a month or two, then you are all of a sudden had like hearings and, you know, police were being fired in Ferguson, Missouri. And the first time there was such a clear reaction to it, even the White House started getting involved and commenting on it. And it was only because the conversation took on this sort of coherent, focused structure by virtue of the networks that were allowing people from diverse communities to talk to each other. Um, and to my mind, uh, when we understand that process, and then understand how it gave rise to not just national networks, but international networks. And then with the, with the growth of the protests over uh, George Floyd's death, um, we can start to see how the only explanation for understanding these kinds of tipping point moments is that the networks create a sufficient infrastructure that allows these kinds of things to take hold. Um, the people are the same. The interests are the same. It's just that they weren't connected in the right way previously. Um, and that's what I mean by, you know, if you can find the right spot in a network, you can all of a sudden start sort of activating things in a way that couldn't have been done before. It's great, man. You're doing such a great job of the storytelling to bring it to life. And I absolutely love it. I, 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 I really found it helpful the way you contrasted the way plagues move then to how movements move in a digital realm that was really really useful and for example i mentioned uh carl dieter rope or up and how he actually went around interviewing people and then compare that to hashtags in the future and how that all just it was just so easier much easier because you could map and you could see this the virality of things but i'd love you to share 
mentioning the blast of the past because in the chapter the myth of virality the unexpected weakness of weak ties great title you said in the spring of 1347 the black plague landed in marseille in france shipborne rats from sicily and crete carried infected oriental rat fleas and they scurried into the cities the fleas intestines were bursting with plague bacterium they injected a heavy dose of the disease directly into the bloodstream of everyone they bit, resulting in immediate infection. Within days, the rats had invested the city, and so had the disease. I love this part of the book where you give us a blast to the past and how disease actually spreads and how that compares to the weakness of weak ties. I would say the most interesting part of this is that the kind of history of disease spread looks really similar um, to the history of things like the spread of Christianity um, and the spread of technological innovation um, because it's all geographic. It spreads, you know, from, you know, certain parts of Europe and you can see these, if you look at these like historical maps, you see these like waves and it's like this propagating wave front and disease, the black plague looks just like Christianity, which just looks just like different farming techniques. Everything kind of cascades in the same way. So that leads to an obvious inference, which is that disease and religion and farming technologies all spread in the same fashion. They're all basically the same kind of thing. Um, so you fast forward a couple of centuries and say, well, now diseases can hop on an airplane, right? And so H1N1 and then COVID and jump across the world really quickly. So obviously everything else works like that too, because they all look the same before, so they're all going to look the same now. And this is where there's there, there's a, a real um, junction point in the science, because we just couldn't tell them apart before, because the data looked the same for everything, right? Um, the spread of the Black Plague looked like the spread of Christianity, the spread of innovation. So all of a sudden, when you can see diseases jumping across the world on these sort of weak ties, um, then when you look at something like the spread of hashtags online, you expect to see that same kind of process because obviously if you have those available sort of uh, weak ties going out in all directions, then they should be used in the same way that planes are used by diseases who jump across the world. And then what you see is they're not being used that actually all those weak ties are sitting there, but they're not functional. In fact, the, these sort of hashtags are taking different pathways across these sort of online spaces. And it sort of blows your mind at first because it means that these inferences we've been making for hundreds of years are like false inferences. And it's not until we can actually see these two things spreading in very different ways that we're forced to confront the fact that, you know, our theory of disease spread is a really poor theory of behavior change. Um, and so we need an entirely different theory to understand why we're seeing this sort of spreading process across social um, media and also across uh, social networks more generally that looks so different from the way diseases now spread. It's probably worth mentioning also, Damon, the redundancy effect, because this is important element of the weakness of weak ties. Yeah. So the the basic way we used to think about spreading, and, and I think that many people still do, is reach, is to say, and this was the idea that, you know, Grant Avedder um, and the sort of strength of weak ties 1970s um, really highlighted that, that a link that could carry a message or an idea across a long social space would be the key to any sort of successful spreading um, initiative. 
And, uh, and so what makes those um, links powerful is what we call reach, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's how far one link uh, goes from different, you know, one community to many other different communities. Um, and redundancy would be the enemy of reach in the sense that if you have uh, a close friend and they know your other close friend and then you actually share another friend in common, then those networks form little triangles. And so if you tell one person a piece of news um, and tell somebody else a piece of news, then when the first person tells the second person, they've already heard it from you. So that's a wasted tie for getting the word out, right? So these, these networks are very redundant. And the more clustering, the more sort of triangles there are, the less effective the network is for spreading things quickly because they don't reach anywhere. It's just sort of reinforcing the same message within the same community. It turns out that although that redundancy is incredibly wasteful for spreading information, it's incredibly valuable for spreading behavior change. Um, and so the redundancy, which I think historically been thought of as like the enemy of effective diffusion, actually turns out to be the greatest ally of effective diffusion. And that's why when I was talking about um, Black Lives Matter, I was talking about this idea of wide bridges because a single link across the social world is a narrow bridge. It's one tie. If that relationship falls apart, that bridge disappears and all of a sudden what was of small space now becomes a large space. Um, but if you have lots of redundant connections, then you have lots of reinforcing ties. You have sort of more intimacy in the relationships. More importantly, if one person disappears or one relationship falls away, you still have more ties to maintain that. And the more people who adopt in one community, the more reinforcing messages there are to other communities, letting them know this thing's a good idea. We're taking it seriously. You should adopt it too. Um, and this is particularly relevant, I think ironically in some ways, for things like adopting social media technologies. Um, and first, we think of social media stuff like Twitter, Facebook, whatever, something that should just explode on the Internet. Once it's available online and it works, why not just everyone adopt it? It turns out that the history of adoption for every major social media technology doesn't look like a virus. It doesn't explode everywhere at once online. What it does is it spreads through these kinds of social clusters, through these wide overlapping bridges and jumps from one area to another area through this very kind of concerted social effort. And the reason why is the same reason that the Aerosmith gesture didn't spread like that. It's the same reason why um, all of the sort of social innovations that require uh, other people to adopt were spread through these sorts of wide bridges and peripheral networks is because people have to coordinate. You need other people to use a social media technology in order for it to be useful for you, right? You can't use it by yourself. So um, it's one of the key reasons why when we see social media technology spreading, they look a lot like a social movement because it's this sort of social coordination process that makes it valuable. And then that has to carry over to other groups that are equally connected. So it's valuable for them too. Um, and so it's, I think, one of the big and interesting lessons about the ways that online technology has been helpful for, of course, you know, spreading lots of information around the world. But actually, it's revealed something kind of ancient about how our social networks have operated all along in this sort of clustered reinforcing way to carry sort of new innovations and ideas across our society. I just love the idea of the lone high five going into the canteen. <laughs> Who's with me? Who's up for change? Yeah. And now everybody's just going to go, oh, here he comes again. Here he and comes then, again, right, exactly. And then, <laughs> the, then the, the CEO is like, no, you must do the high five. You must do the Aerosmith gesture. And it doesn't work. But um, in no. Damon's book, 
again on special on Amazon for the hard cover, which is beautiful to hold, is the, in the notes and extra. Uh, references section of the book there's a map uh, facebook map where three economists created these facebook blue circles i thought it'd be useful to talk about that now i'm not a fan of meta or facebook it's like uh, i often think about you know you know those fake mustache and glasses like we're now meta <laughs> you know you're still facebook you're still facebook but uh it's hard to think that anyone's going to be confused by that yeah, yeah exactly but but you talk about that there and it's interesting because a lot of people still use that as a social platform yeah um and so what's interesting about the the blue circle story is that uh the question was you know if we look at people's connections on facebook um where would their connections be which is a it's a kind of analog to the sort of thing milgram is doing it's like well how connected is the world and so obviously we expect um that if we can connect without any geographic limitations right on a sort of internet digital platform then um, we would just have, you know, everyone who likes cowboy hats talking to people who like cowboy hats and they're going to be all across the country and everyone who likes, you know, um, uh, well, now I'm, for some reason I, I have all these farm metaphors. I was going to say horses and sheep maybe because <laughs> we went to the farm with my son recently. So now I have to think about some other <laughs> but uh, people who like bicycles talking to people who like bicycles and they're all over the country. Right. So you kind of you this expectation. It's like, oh, people will just connect by interest and it, it won't have any kind of local structure to it. Um, and what was so stunning about their um, their discovery was that the vast majority of areas that would light up on the map, if you click on any location um, and it would light up, you know, the areas that were most connected to that location, they were all like basically this dense radius right around that location. So you get these things that looked like it was a map of geography, but it was actually a map of internet connections. Um, and it's because people need to coordinate with the people around them. They're going to go out, they're going to go to a party, they have friends in common, they are looking at classes, whatever it is. Um, and interestingly, the only location in the U.S. Um, that had network ties that would look like what you would expect, which is that when you clicked on it, the whole map of the U.S. would light up, different parts would light up blue, um, was a U.S. Marine base. Where, which was like the major base for basic training. So people from all over the country would come. And the reason it lit up the world is because people didn't stay there. It was just like a passage point um, onto their next stop. And so from, from that perspective, sure, um, if somewhere is just kind of a layover, then it's going to have attach, attachments to lots of other places. But any place that people actually stay and live, all of a sudden their social sort of influences become really localized around that area, which tells us again of the importance of our sort of clustered close relationships for our, our behavior and our thinking. It made me think of something, Damon, that was, you're, you're a, a professor in college, I do some lecturing as well. And a lot of the students come from all over the world. And I have had their great opportunity in life and privilege to travel a lot and play professional sports I lecture I do I do loads of different things and it made me think actually well that weakens the ties but it gives me more and more ties and then I thought that what it made me think then was well that's a metaphor for diverse and eclectic reading or neurodiversity because you do the same in your brain actually you get this kind of weak ties and then you kind of get a more polymath experience of the world and then your world becomes a much more interesting and curious place yeah i would certainly say that you know reading broadly you know 
again, construed in terms of both what we consume uh, literally, but what we consume, you know, socially is, you know, a huge part of becoming sort of a cosmopolitan citizen. Um, and then one of the, I think one of the key questions is then what, you know, what can we do with those networks? Um, and I think this is something a lot of people are asking themselves um, in the space of like um, sustainability mobilization, right? How do we sort of, there are lots of different areas and lots of different people doing uh, interesting and important things. Um, some people working on like wildlife conservation, people working on wetlands, some people working on like fisheries. And how do those sort of locally invested enterprises um, form sort of some kind of more general knowledge about what we can do uh, for sustainability? And I think we see that with um, most kinds of social activism that we're trying to figure out what the kind of plurality of experiences that we've had can tell us about how to sort of grow something that has a, a bit more of a, of a reinforcing structure to it so that we can use all of those sort of connections to build a, an infrastructure that can really support change. Um, and in many ways, that's what the, the second part of the book tries to do is to talk about how to do that. That's what you do so well in this book, you can see the diverse reading that you've done in the book. And I'm gonna, we only have time for this last part, which is we're only in chapter three, by the way, those people who, who are there's low, there's four parts to the book. And it's absolutely magnificent, it grows and grows. And the first time first part actually focuses on the challenges of all this. But I wanted to talk about the myth of stickiness, and why great innovations fail. This will be of particular interest for our audience. You start this by saying, Ralph Waldo Emerson offered an inspiring view of product innovation and the opportunity opposed. He said, if a man has good corn or wood or boards or pigs to sell, or make better chairs or knives, crucibles or church organs than anyone else, you will find a broad, hard beaten road to his house, though it be in the woods. Or more colloquially, you say, if you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat the path to your door. It is inspiring. But unfortunately, it is wrong. Right. Yeah, it's it's one of those quotes that a lot of us grow up with. Um, and it sort of, you know, stokes the fires of, of innovation. Um, but, you know, this is where uh, having read a lot of economic literature, you can see that, you know, the, the dustbins of history are littered with, with great products and innovations that never caught on and, and sort of shoddy ones that did. Um, and so it raises this kind of fundamental question for our, you know, sort of the um, Emersonian basic economic model, which is like, well, why are, why are bad things catching on? Um, and more importantly, why, why are good things struggling? Like, what, what's the problem here? Um, a lot of these things were heavily invested in. They had you know, smart marketing campaigns. They were, you know, um, more um, cost effective in the market. Like, and what happens in those cases is that the shoddier, less well-performing thing just got entrenched in the networks more effectively. And so created much more sort of reinforcing value for that uh, product. And um, it's very hard to challenge that. And in fact, that's one of the things I come around to later on is, well, once you see that, this kind of entrenchment on a, you know, um, in many cases, what winds up being for many products, like a social norm, like we just use this now, this is what's ex expected and we know how to do it. And there's a lot of functional and social knowledge about it. How do you ever shift that norm? How do you ever change it? Um, this is where, you know, this question of like, well, you have to gain entrance into the network from the right way. I think that the vast majority of um, strategies that we've used have been based on this idea of if we just give people all the information they need, they'll make a smart choice. 
and I'm hoping that that after this book, people will realize that that is just a really it's a false premise and a false conclusion. Um, the you know the idea that information alone can do the trick is something that has been around since Jesus, since the Enlightenment. You know, it's like this idea that uh, people are gonna are gonna make the right choice for them because. Um, we are fundamentally making rational decisions. And fundamentally, that model is, is a person who's not social at all. It's a model of a person who's just doing a calculus in their head and, um, and then deciding on their products without evaluating the other people using their products and the other sort of effects of the fact that they're not alone. Um, and we can see this more transparently. And this is why I like communication technologies like the phone or the, the, my wife criticized me for using the fax example. She was like, no one even knows what a fax machine is. Why are you using a fax machine? I remember, I man. Like I remember. That, I used to like that example a lot because it was like this big bulgy thing, you know, and it was like, why would you buy this? And it was by itself. It can't do anything. You know, right? But social media is a better example today. Um, only because it's, it's something everyone has and everyone kind of intuitively gets that you can't do it by yourself. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's true of everything in that space. And what's interesting, I think, is that it's not just those sorts of, those sorts of communication technologies that, um, that have these kinds of effects. It's, it's the vast majority of things we do. Um, and so this is where the stickiness logic sort of fails us is because we tend to think, well, if the product failed, it's because we didn't design the product well enough or we didn't design our marketing campaign well enough. So if we just, you know, tweak features of the product or how we're selling the product, then like that'll catch on. And I highlight examples where um, I try to, you know, highlight the, the stakes of, of the fact that we get this point wrong, which is that it's not just that we don't sell products effectively. It's that our major changes um, and our major attempts to like save lives around the world. You think of recently with the, the problem in the U.S. with people not getting vaccinated. But, um, you know, historically, this has been an issue for large scale public health initiatives around the world. Um, and it continues to be an issue. Because the logic continues to be, you know, if we just get the right kind of information to people and make it really catchy and, and attractive, then everyone will, of course, adopt something that will save their lives. And you only need to look at the number of people who wouldn't wear masks and wouldn't get vaccinated to see that, like, just telling people they should do something to save their lives won't actually make them do it. Um, information isn't enough. And, you know, putting it in a sexy package isn't enough either. Um, so I give this example of um, uh, HIV prevention technology in uh um, in sub-Saharan Africa. And what was going on there for years uh, was that people were trying, this is the, you know, the NIH largely sponsored this, but um, WHO as well, um, you know, trying to use uh, what science told us were the most effective preventive measures. So condoms, of course, but also male circumcision. So these dramatically reduced the transmission of diseases. Um, and, you know, Condoms were a huge problem. They were viewed as unmasculine or a threat to masculinity in many cultures. And then, you know, male circumcision was even a bigger problem because it was viewed as a cultural profanity um, in many cultures as well. Um, so it was this attempt by and, and you wind up with some really ugly cultural crisis where like, you know, non-governmental organizations were going in and circumcising young men, even though like the elders of the town were saying they weren't allowed to. And it, it turned into like violent conflicts. It was just a, um, a really ugly situation. And everyone felt like they were trying to do good. But at the same time, um, no one really had a solution that would work for getting people to sort of on a large scale adopt safe practices. So um, the invention of a pill that was essentially like a daily Tylenol that you could take that would 
um, be as effective for preventing the transmission of HIV as these other things that were much more invasive um, was like a miracle drug. It's like, wow, we, we, we've cracked the nut. We figured it out. We have something that's, you know, um, perfectly easy to use um, and it's not invasive and we can give it to people for free and we'll make it completely accessible. So it's really easy to get. So we're gonna make this as sticky as possible, right? And we're gonna tell everyone this pill will save your life, right? Has no side effects and here it is for free, take it. Um, and of course, what they found was that they, they had this study across uh, three sub-Saharan uh, sub African nations. And um, of the women in the study, these are women who are like going every week to the clinic and having their blood tested. Of the women in the study, only 30% actually had traces of medication in their blood, which is stunning, right? So these are people who are actually participating, but they're not actually taking the pill. Um, and so the question is, oh my God, why not? Um, and there's this remarkable uh, article in the New England Journal of Medicine reporting on this, where the authors are basically pulling their hair out. They're like, we've done everything that you can do to you know, stop the, the HIV pandemic in Africa. And we're, you know, um, finding that people are like, we're giving them the pill and they're just not taking it. And what's going on here is that the stigma was so um, great within the, within the communities that people believed that, um, first of all, there's tremendous discrimination against people with HIV. Second of all, they believed that taking HIV prevention medic medication could actually give you HIV. Um, in the same way, people often believe that getting a flu shot can give you the flu, right? Um, and so, uh, what that means is that there would be a stigma for someone who's taking the medication. Ironically, that person is, of course, more protected from HIV, but the social uh, in, in, in implication would be that person would be more vulnerable to HIV, right? And so, to avoid that, you know, that resulting stigma, then the person would hide it and not take the medication. Um, and so you wound up with a situation where the cultural and social norms around this disease and prevention measures for the disease were actually much more powerful than an incredibly sticky, well-marketed, well-publicized, well-distributed solution to a problem. Um, and so what it tells us is that, um, you know, the, I think the line I use in the book is that social and cultural norms can't be so easily outsmarted, right? You're just like, here's something sticky and fun and shiny and pretty and just use that. It's, uh, social norms are, are pretty, you know, powerful things. And um, the question always is, you know, when you have that kind of entrenchment and that entrenchment socially is what's creating the problem, how do you ever get around it? And of course, the solution is to is to get inside the social network and to use the network instead of as, the, as your main obstacle, as your main advantage. I just want to say there was so much more in these chapters. Damon compares, for example, awareness, uh, lack of use, for example, Google Plus for those of us who were forced to use it. <laughs> and the fact that we didn't made it even worse for Google. Uh, Google Glass is in there and so many technologies that failed and why. And later on in the book then, and we hope to get together later on, Damon is has a busy month ahead, but I have a place in his diary in about three weeks or so. I hope to share more of the solutions with you. But Damon, that was absolutely magnificent. Thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you if they want to reach out for keynotes to find out about more about your work, the extra resources in the book, etc.? So my research group is called the Network Dynamics Group. So there's a website. Um, and then uh, for most of the other sort of public facing things I do, I'm with the Lee Bureau, uh, Speakers Bureau. Author of Change, How to Make Big Things Happen, Damon Santola. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Aiden. Awesome, man. That was so good. Thank you.
an absolutely fantastic episode brought to you by Zai boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to transfer funds with ease and manage multiple payment workflows. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. I'll see you soon. And I cannot wait for part two of change with Damon Centola.